Howdy, howdy. It's Ed Gallo. This is the Wrestling for MMA podcast. Uh, we're in kind of a down period right now with the UFC events, uh, but that doesn't mean there isn't more MMA happening elsewhere in the world. Uh, I typically ignore it, but <laughs> there's, there's some stuff to talk about here. Um, so to help me out, I'm joined today by my good buddies from the wrestling community, uh, Richard Mann. Say hello, Richard. Hi, everybody. And you write for ESPN about MMA, and you write for Intermat about wrestling. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. And we also have Jack Hurley. Say hello, Jack. Yes, it is me. <laughs> That's the infamous Jack. Also, oldest, oldest and greatest on Twitter. Maybe you've seen him by that name. Uh, and he writes for The Fight Site, which is the website that I am a part of that this podcast is hosted by. So if you don't know The Fight Site, not sure how you're listening, but... Welcome. And uh, these guys are, are definitely super plugged into the wrestling world. I consider myself to be above average plugged in, but I think both these guys would consider themselves wrestling people first. Uh, so they're, they're, they're on it. They're in it. So that's uh, definitely going to be helpful for me. Uh, but actually, to start the show, we are going to talk about MMA uh, before, or I don't know what you want to call it. You can call it before the next year or the start of the next year. Uh, as as is tradition, Ryzen is doing a New Year's Eve show. Uh, if you don't know Ryzen, they're basically the what third, you know, resurrection of of Pride Fighting Championships. Uh, so Pride folded, and I believe either it was Dream after Pride. Correct. And then was there something in between, or just went Pride Dream Ryzen? Was Sengoku part of? Is that a separate thing? Yeah, Sengoku was kind of separate. I mean, they were. Gotcha. They were in contention for leading the Japanese scene, but it was sort of like a different group behind it. Whereas Dream was some of the people who worked with Pride and some of the people who worked with K1. And now Ryzen is run by the guy who was behind Pride right. the whole time. So yeah, that's yeah. the connecting factor is the same, mm-hmm. same creator, same CEO, whatever you want to call him. But yeah, Ryzen cards are, are good fun. Uh, I really enjoy watching them when I do watch them. The bad part is that it's Japanese local time. And they come on at like 2, 3 a.m. And you really got to get up for it. So they don't hold events super often, which is helpful. Uh, but if you ever do you know, stay up for a Ryzen event or are they still doing the pay-per-views on Fight TV? I don't think this one's on Fight, but I do know that it is a online pay-per-view. And I think they just announced that they're going to have VOD, which they were going to have originally. So Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, the, the appeal has always been, you know, unlimited replays. So, you know, you could buy the event and then not watch it live and then watch it in the morning or something like that. And they're usually reasonably priced for what they are. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm plugging Ryzen here just because it's a really uh, strong organization that doesn't get a lot of attention, unfortunately. Usually when they're doing crazy freak show stuff is when they get get the looks, like when they did the attention versus Floyd, which was, you know, bad, <laughs> objectively. So, uh, but yeah, they, they got a good card coming up here. I actually haven't, like, fully perused the card. Um but in particular, there are some wrestlers, wrestler to MMA prospects that have crossed onto the card. And uh, we're definitely going to get into that. That's going to be the main point of discussion. And making his pro debut, correct? It's his first MMA fight, amateur or pro, yeah. uh, is a Shinobu Ota, who is a Greco-Roman world champion and Olympic silver medalist. Uh, and Richard specifically said we should talk about this guy. Uh, so Richard, what besides just the credentials? Well, yeah, we'll talk about why the credentials are, are a big deal. What what is the state of credentialed Greco wrestlers in MMA right now? 
Right. So I kind of wanted to talk about it because I think there's a couple interesting things. One is I think that a lot of the transition of Greco guys into MMA has sort of slowed. So I kind of wanted to see about that. But then also um, Ota seems, you know, watching his matches and his run through the 2019 tournament, he seems to be very a lot more active than your average Greco guy. Um, He also sort of gets into scrambles. So I'm interested to see how his, you know, style will transition. Um, We've seen a lot of Greco guys over the years really do well in, in the cage where they're able to use that stand up upright stance to hold their opponents on the cage and control and do business there. He doesn't really, um, he hasn't really shown that in his Greco career. Um, You know, he's more likely to just get on a front headlock and, you know, roll and score points that way. And then also, I mean, they really, they really haven't done him many favors matching him up here against uh, Hideo Tokoro, a guy who's got just a huge extensive record um, and sort of has that legacy rings submission before position style. So you're taking a guy who's coming into a sport where he doesn't have a background in submissions at all. And particularly at Greco, where he's not even really dealing with leg attacks. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I fully expect him to get leg locked very quickly, but if he doesn't, I think that maybe that means something. <laughs> so, I don't know. There is a video going around, you know, forever. You know, if, if you've been watching MMA for 10 plus years, there's one of those videos like craziest grappling match ever, like craziest submission war ever. And it's a, it's a Tokoro fight. I forget which fight it is, but you know, it's one of his MMA fights where it's just back and forth submission attempts. just like crazy scrambling, lots of, lots of action, lots of, yeah, lots of submission attempts. So, you know, with, with a guy with a limited background, you're hoping for them to be able to, you know, minimize the amount of exchanges <laughs> that are going to happen in a grappling context. Um, and typically with, with the wrestler of that statue can say like, oh yeah, they're going to, they can basically just stonewall them and try to try to stand or try to just, you know, control which positions they grapple in. In this case, you have someone that's going to like drop to leg locks or isn't afraid to play off their back or, you know, get any sort of contact and begin grappling. So that's definitely more dangerous uh, of a matchup. When it was first announced, we were both like, that is a really bad choice <laughs> for, right, a, yeah. for a debut showcase. Um, but yeah, it was interesting what you said about Ota being a more active wrestler and, and that maybe that playing playing into it because the modern Greco metagame is like, people don't do that much and it's not really incentivized to do a lot. And if you, uh, as someone that got into MMA, but made a splash in MMA more recently, it would be a Mark O. Madsen uh, from Denmark, who is a bazillion time Olympic and world medalist, lots of silvers and bronze. Uh, If you watch his matches, seldom does anything happen. It's very, very often just stalemates on the feet, forced parterre, so they make them go on the mat and then gut wrenches. That's, that's pretty much all of his wins look like that. Um, but then you see him in MMA and he looks like an MMA fighter, right? He's you know aggressive. He's shooting double legs, which I'm like, did he learn that for MMA? Did he already know how to shoot doubles? Things I'm, I question, but he looks different. You know what I mean? So you can never really tell how someone's style is going to translate if they're going to look like they looked in their amateur career or if they're going to look like a completely different person. So if you think of other Greco guys that have come over in MMA, like the, the group from Team Quest that really popularized Greco's involvement, uh, you know, like uh, Matt Lindland, uh, Randy Couture, Chael Sonnen, those guys, uh, their, their interpretation of Greco and MMA, Dan Henderson, their interpretation of Greco and MMA was hold you against the cage. 
pretty much. But all those guys had folk backgrounds too. So yeah, they could shoot and take you down in space as well. Um, so people got a weird idea of what Greco looks like in an MMA context, but then in international organizations outside the UFC, that's typically where you see the guys who have pure Greco backgrounds and it looks all sorts of different ways. Uh, I'm trying to think, I think there have been, you know, some other high level Greco converts in, in the past. Uh, I just don't remember them. And obviously they didn't do well enough for me to remember who they were, but I'm, I'm sure pride yeah. had a few guys where they had like three or four fights or something like that. Right. Right. I think with, with Greco, unlike the other forms of wrestling, it really does seem like either a boom or bust. Like we get guys who come in and they adapt to it very quickly. Um, and then there's other guys where it just never works. Like I remember uh, Kazuyuki Miata was a guy who yeah. fought in pride in K1. He was, I believe a silver medalist and, you know, he had some wins and he stayed with the sport for a while, but he never really reached the level that you would think. Um, and then more recently, I mean, it's getting into the age group stuff, but Ursin Yamamoto, who yeah. is the nephew of Kid Yamamoto, he was a 2013 uh, cadet world champion in Greco. And I think that they really wanted to push him because the Yamamoto family has a lot of sway um, in Japan, very popular family. Um, and it just hasn't worked out. I mean, he's three and five. And I believe uh, Tokoro's last win, it was. Yeah, Tokoro's last win was actually an armbar over Ursin Yamamoto, where he basically, Yamamoto dropped him with a one-two. And then they ended up in guard. And he immediately rolled for an armbar and submitted him like he hadn't really grappled ever before. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that that is. I mean, I, I'm curious for to get your, both your feelings on this, because you are guys who, you know, see the wrestling game and see the MMA game. It's like, what, what can we really pinpoint to, you know, predict the success of someone transitioning? Because I always kind of thought it was, you know, someone who can really score takedowns without having to set it up because they can deal with the range better, but that doesn't really apply with Greco. And we've seen many guys from Greco be successful. So I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts on that. For me, and Jack, let me know how you feel about this. For me, a lot of the time what I look for with you know high-profile wrestlers of any style transitioning is like, what is their athletic type? Because no matter if their skills translate or not, at the very least, they're going to be able to package this new information in a style that works well for MMA. So like someone like Yoel Romero, very reliable that he was going to be really good at MMA. Even though if you go watch his wrestling matches, he does pretty much nothing that he did in his wrestling career. He wrestled like Kale Sanderson, <laughs> which is pretty funny because he wrestled Kale three times, but he was all front headlock stuff. He's all snaps and the whole snap system, snap ankle pick, snap go behind all that stuff. Um, very, very rarely do you see him take shots from the outside or uh, sometimes went upper body. That's like the only thing you see really um, in MMA that he actually did in his wrestling career with any consistency. So I, something like that you could watch his wrestling career and be like oh my god this guy's a monster and then in mma you can see him doing mma things and be like oh yeah this guy's a monster also <clears throat> his brother or somebody close to him uh was a high level pro boxer and he seemed to have picked that up pretty quickly as well so things like that can be helpful uh i, I wrote about uh Rinya nakamura pretty recently u23 world champion from japan who's doing mma and the thing I liked about him was he had really explosive attacks from the outside. And like, even if the setups aren't there, even if everything else isn't really working out, at least I know he can probably get to the legs and let it all work play out from there because he can, he can get himself to the legs. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Whereas like Johnny Hendricks, you're like, yeah, the base skill is really, really high, 
but his style of wrestling wasn't that good for MMA. And when he got into tougher fights and he didn't really have the setups, I talked about this in another episode, like you saw him struggling in college. A lot of the time guys have the style where it's like get to the leg and then work it out. But, you know, usually it's like a just touch the leg and then I'm going to build up and go through a 10 step progression to get to my finish uh, versus, you know, really explosive entry that gets you into an advantageous position right away. Uh, so stuff like that, you can kind of start to, piece together how high or low you're going to be on them uh sometimes divorced from the base skill set it's weird i try to do this with a uh, freestyle and and folk style sometimes we're like a really good mat wrestler like for example we, we were talking about this in the chat the other day uh darian cruz who i love uh really really good on top in college right he rode people out all the time and that's like how he became an all-american was a really sick ride i think against earl hall and uh <clears throat> In freestyle, the worst part of his game is mat wrestling, is top and bottom. You know what I mean? He gets turned and uh, doesn't look that prolific as a turner himself. So sometimes you think someone just has like a gift for a certain area. It's like, oh, he gets he gets mat wrestling, he gets scrambling, he gets all that stuff. But when the rules change and things become different, sometimes maybe it doesn't translate or they're not, maybe they're not as invested in becoming good at that. So, uh, Predictions like that do bust all the time, but I think those are still fair assumptions to make. If you look at someone like, I don't know if Seth Gross was good at mat wrestling before, uh, before he got, you know, really good at it in college with like AJ shop and stuff, but that's someone who, yeah, he's got his offense on the feet, but he, he really makes a lot happen on the mat with, uh, with his scrambles and turns and stuff like that. So I, I try to draw those kinds of connections, but you really, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. Jack, does that inspire anything from you? I don't even, what was the original question? Like, what do you look for to see if a guy's going to transition well? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree that the main thing is athletic ability generally and also sort of specifically athletic type, like what forms of athleticism they're best at. Uh, and sort of explosiveness and skill acquisition are the most important. Uh, because when you think about... Um, you know, you see the success of lower division college wrestlers at MMA right now, where you have all kinds of, you know, D2 and NAIA guys having success. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily the, the most successful college wrestlers right now. And people try and make that a whole thing that, as if that's, that's all that <laughs> like the causal, like that's not the causal part. It's not that, oh, well, you know, they, they had less to unlearn that was wrestling specific. It's just that it's a much larger pool of athletes and what transfers is durability and athleticism. And those aren't always perfectly correlated with wrestling skill. And so it's, it's the things like, you know, how quickly can you just learn a move and then start implementing it in your game? It's how well do you take a shot? It's just how powerfully do you finish? And those are not necessarily the same as the things that win you a conventional wrestling match. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that there's so many things that go into being a successful wrestler. I think you kind of hit on something that's a pet issue of mine, which is the success of, you know, guys who wrestled at the collegiate level and a lower division. And I think there are a couple of things. One is um, even though wrestling is more popular and more closely watched by college coaches than it ever has been before, it's still in the point where a lot of guys can fall through the cracks if they're not going to Fargo or going to these big tournaments. And you could end up at a small school and really you know, have the physical aptitude to maybe 
do better at the division one level than guys on the division one level. Um, two, I think that the skills, the skills that are transferable, you can have all the skills that are transferable to be a great MMA fighter and still not be able to win a high level wrestling match. Um, it's just, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. So I think that that's kind of what we're getting at here is we know some of the skills that are transferable, but I mean, we're still surprised, or at least I'm surprised when, um, you know, people do well or people don't do well, you know, like we've seen Aaron Pico struggle and, you know, I, I still am amazed that Ben Askren did as well as he did. Cause it just didn't seem like a style that was transferable. Um, you know, and he, he really, he really exceeded my expectations. He had some struggle at the end, but um, you know, it, he was able to make it happen. And I think that's what Jack was going on about with the skill adaptability and skill acquisition, which I think is definitely hard to quantify, but um, we do see that some people just adapt to different styles better than others. Uh huh. And you can never account for how seriously they're taking it or not taking it and what their training situation is and stuff like that. A less severe example, I would say would be Ed Ruth. Um, he, he definitely rushed his career just with the matchmaking. Um, I know Bellator tries to push a lot of opportunities onto their wrestling prospects. They really invest in those guys. Uh, you saw it with Pico. He, he had access to some really high-level matchups pretty quickly, and he took those chances, and they didn't go well for him. Same with Ed Ruth. He only had a handful of fights in a pretty short amount of time, jumped into the welterweight Grand Prix right away in a five-round fight. He wasn't ready for it. Um, didn't give himself room to, uh, to try things, you know what I mean, and, and really work his style and, and you know, have a more scientific environment. He was being put in matchups where he had to be competing really hard and trying to win right away. So his focus was like, I got to get good. I got to get be good right now. And his idea of being good wasn't structured. And I don't think it was well, well organized. Um, and I know his training situation changed over time. He ended up at AK at the end there. But before that, he was uh, with like Josh Koscheck and wherever Duran Lynn was before that with uh, in Fresno, it was like a dethrone franchise gym but it wasn't like a big uh, one of those super gyms it was something he could have easily had access to with his uh, credentials uh so i just don't think he i'm not gonna say he didn't take it seriously but kind of, i don't think he did it the right way <laughs> from what i can tell in the way his style was developing he's like oh i'm long i'm gonna kick a lot and i can wrestle so sometimes i'll wrestle but nothing there was no thought put into it of how one thing was going to work with the other which i think is a decently high level concept but if you're coaching MMA fighters at the highest level, you should be thinking about stuff like that. So that's one example. I don't think it was like a huge failure on any part, but you know, there was clearly something lacking there uh, for someone like him not to do well. Cause if you look at athletic type, you said, yeah, he could do well. If you look at skill based skill, you said, yeah, he could definitely do well. Uh, you know, speed at getting good at things. Uh, this might just be a transferability of abilities already. But uh, when Ed Ruth went into freestyle, he made a world team, what, within two years, it was, it was quick. Um, so that, that's someone where all the signs are there, like, oh yeah, he's going to do well. And he didn't do that great. Uh, a more extreme example, and we only have one fight to go with this, but Boris Novotkov's MMA fight was mm. one of the worst efforts to win an MMA fight I've ever seen from someone at that level. And I say this as someone that was really excited about watching him and he's a really goofy character and also a super, super high level wrestler. Uh, we can dispute this, but he arguably should have won a match over Olympic champion Soslan Nermanov in 2015, uh, right before he won the Olympics. So <clears throat> very high-level guy, wrestling college, wrestled internationally. Uh, and you could probably gather by watching his Instagram uh, account 
how that was going to go, but I just thought it was maybe there was there was a method to the madness. And he's like, oh, this is what he's putting out there. But, you know, secretly he's training hard and learning everything he needs to because uh, he was posting videos of him like hitting a bag in his yard with nunchucks and like his rabbits on the ground. Like it just like was didn't look like anything. It was quite bizarre. Yes. And then uh, his fight happened and the guy wasn't the worst fighter I've ever seen the guy he fought, but he definitely wasn't good. And uh, Boris didn't know MMA. It was very clear pretty quickly. He did not know mixed martial arts at all. He didn't know how to strike. He, he, he looked like he hadn't trained. Uh, and there were videos of him training a couple times. You don't know what he was doing uh, or if it was retained or what the plan was. And sometimes competition anxiety, you forget things, but this is a guy that competed at a really high level and competed athletically at a high level. This wasn't like a pure technician guy. He was pretty wild. Uh, it's just like, I'm not really sure how that happened, but it was, it was a really terrible display. He lost, um, he lost to this guy and he was just trying to shoot from the outside basically every once in a while. Otherwise he was just standing there getting hit. Uh, he got a couple takedowns, but he didn't know jujitsu. So he couldn't keep the guy down. And even though he did wrestle in college, folks, not his real base. So not that much of a mat wrestler and it's been years removed. So you can't account for somebody not putting in the time and you can't account for somebody completely dedicating themselves to continue to grow in that respect. Um, someone like Dominic Cruz is a really interesting example wrestled in high school and like, wasn't even a state qualifier. I don't believe in Arizona, which is not a tough state in the first place. And he went on to take down guys who were, you know, college all Americans and credentialed and all, all sorts of stuff like that favor uh, TJ Dillashaw um, but I, I wrote about it, a bunch of guys. So uh, he, he ended up being one of the best wrestlers in the division. Um, not a shame. It's a shame that him and Cejudo didn't fight, you know, earlier in Cruz's career because uh, that could have been more interesting. But uh, Kevin Lee and Tony Ferguson is an interesting one. They wrestled at the same college. Um, and Tony Ferguson was a, like a club nationals champion with the college. And Kevin Lee, I think, just did whatever he did. Uh, but when it came time for them to fight in MMA, it was very clear whose style of wrestling translated better for getting takedowns because Kevin Lee took him down over and over again. Of course, he didn't win. But <laughs> so it, there's so yeah. many factors that go into how it's actually going to play out. It's really, really hard for, for us to predict things. And I know we all share that struggle as people who are in the MMA space from, from a wrestling background because every time a wrestler talks about fighting in MMA or ends up fighting in MMA, Everyone's like, oh, how do you think they'll do? How do you think they'll do? And like, I have no idea. There's no way to know. Kyle Dake, oh, there's Toasty. Kyle Dake no, said he was going to do MMA and he posted a video of him hitting a, the pad that was like all the way over there. It looks like he was trying to fight someone who's seven feet tall. And like, if you brought that in there, I'm like, no, I'm not going to pick Kyle Dake to win. <laughs> but, right. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's tough. Yeah. I, it's just, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, one more thing that you kind of mentioned that I do want to hit on is the sort of like lack of transitions in freestyle and Greco where, you know, if we see people get takedowns in freestyle or Greco, people immediately base out and go parts air. And I do worry about that because I do think we see that sometimes where the inability to like hold position or continue wrestling once the thing hits the ground. I remember when Cejudo fought Demetrius Johnson the first time he got the takedown and he like seemed to like, muscle memory led up like he was on top in freestyle and you know dj just got back up and went back to work on him and i think um that kind of interplay probably is one of the harder things for wrestlers to learn in general 
but I wonder if that's like a bigger hurdle for guys who are primarily focused on freestyle and Greco as well. Or if they're not good in freestyle at doing that. Cause that's, you know, that's right. a skill in freestyle too is quickly transitioning mm-hmm. to parterre. Uh, so someone like James Green, sorry. Uh, someone like James Green, I'd be like, oh yeah, I bet he could, you know, pick up some some cool jujitsu pretty quickly just because he'd, he'd know right after he hits the mat. Let's get into it. I talked about that last week, actually. I talked about the transferability of freestyle. I talked about that as a strong point of people who are good at making those transitions, like the best of the best. They all do that. Uh, Sajalaya, for example, finishing his takedowns in positions to go right into his gut wrench. It's a whole system. Um, that kind of thinking would translate really well, but more people don't do that. <laughs> so that would be bad as right. well versus folk style where it's very much the concentration. That's a good, that's a good topic, but yeah, it comes up a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a very, yeah. very uh, common topic of discussion, but we actually did not cover all of the Ryzen stuff. So let's, let's get back into Ryzen. Speaking of people well, who I are, think that, are in wrestling. I think, that's, I think that's pretty much the only big wrestling guy on the card. Um, on the card, but in general. Yeah. <laughs> so they, I mean, they do have a, uh, yeah. Um, where do you want to go? Oh, I mean, uh, Miyu Yamamoto is fighting. She's got a couple of world titles, isn't she? Yeah. So that would be Kid Yamamoto's sister, Miyu Yamamoto, multiple time world medalist. Um, she has had a bit of a rough start, got into the sport very late. Um, I believe she's pretty much older. She tried to transfer from Japan to Canada to try to make their world team. Oh, nice. Um, it, didn't really work out she ended up coming up short a couple times and now she's she started fighting um yeah she went one and three in her first four but she since then um kind of turned it around and i believe she's in a title fight against ayaka hamasaki which should be a that's pretty good fight at a one oh eight yeah um and i think she's getting such a late start in the sport and having a wrestling background i think that this is a very tough matchup for her because she sort of learned the basics of anti-jujitsu, and I think that's really spurred her turnaround. But at the same time, now you're going to be dealing with someone who's going to be able to chain attempts together and, you know, hit that secondary submission attempt. And I think that that's going to be tough, especially in a, um, well, I guess it's only going to be, per topology, it's only three rounds, but it's a title fight, so it may right. be five. It's more um, like a, fir- a ten-minute first round and then two fives. Yeah, something like that, right, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that'll be tough, but they got to keep her on the card. She brings in a lot of fans, very popular, yeah. like I said, with the family. And she's a good looking lady and that always helps. Yeah. Her it's world titles are from the nineties. Um, <laughs> 1995 is her most recent world title. Uh, yeah. Not that it doesn't matter. It's just interesting. Uh, we talked about crossover, like how far removed from wrestling she is, but she kept wrestling through 2015. So I guess it's not a, not that wild, but you, you seem to have watched a few of her fights. Uh, what, what is her primary method of incorporating her wrestling? How does she get to her takedowns? Um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of changed over time because I think at the beginning it was just very basic, you know, right hand to a double. Um, I think she's done a better job of, you know, mixing it up and you have to at least commit to the striking for a period of time to you know, force the other person to close distance or force the other person mm-hmm. to circle into your takedowns. And I think that she is picking up those intricacies. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that, you know, like I said, I think this match might be a bit too far at this point. Sure. But we should Hamasaki see. is a good wrestler too. Mm-hmm. I don't know what her back, I think she's judo background. I believe so. Um, I've never really dug down into her background before. I, I've seen her fight multiple times. Um, 
you know, she had a long stretch in Invicta where she yeah, beat a I couple saw some of those fighters who are in the UFC now. And, um, you know, since going back to Ryzen, I believe her only loss was against uh, UFC veteran Sehu Ham, who is basically the only reason why she's not in the UFC is because she's too small for 115. Yeah. But, um, you know, she's a machine at, down at 105. So I think at this division, there's a lot of fights because no one else is really pulling out. Um, 108 pound women. So I think that this is a division that um, Ryzen can really push for. And I think they've done a good job because they got a lot of big names in there. Yeah, they've got, got the best in the world there. Uh, yeah, so we talked about Shinobu Oto, who's debuting. We talked about uh, Ersan Yamamoto, who's not doing so well. Um, the, uh, the UFC just picked up uh, Kaneko Murata. Is that correct? Am I screwing that up? They, they designed yeah, so the first fight. She beats um, another fellow wrestler from Canada. Um, her name Randa is Marcos. Me. Yes, Randa Marcos. Um, and I think Murata is a very interesting fighter because, you know, we, a lot of times, or at least with Miyu Yamamoto or Ursin Yamamoto, they were kind of done with wrestling. Whereas Murata kind of just came from the age level right mm -hmm. into MMA. So she had some very impressive wins on the junior level. She's a junior medalist. She beat um, Helen Malulis uh, in a junior world championship match. Nice. And then she just went to MMA and um, she's not really competed as like a special attraction. Whereas like a lot of these rising fighters who come from other sports, they, you know, they compete on the two or three rising cards a year and that's it. They really, during her development, let her get outside the promotion and fight for, you know, some of the smaller orgs and get that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then she transitioned to Invicta and now the UFC. So I think this is someone who, um, you know, she still needs to clean up her striking a little bit. She still is sort of like a strike, strike, takedown, and then work on the ground. But I, I think in that 115-pound division, I think we saw the success of a lot of wrestlers there. I think that she could um, probably win some fights that people wouldn't think so in the UFC. So I'm excited yeah. to see that going forward as well. And speaking of athletic types, she is very strong. She's very, mm -hmm. very strong. Yeah. Um, so that's helpful. And I'm really hoping that the trend of Japanese women wrestlers continuing to go into MMA picks up just because that's a country where they are the best in the world at their style that, that the Japanese women's freestyle team has been the best for over two decades I believe they've completely dominated the weights though at least the lower half of the weights uh and yeah they probably have just so much talent where people aren't making the teams and I think one of the benefits of their system is they know who's making the teams pretty early. They have like a depth of, uh, you know, one to three or four women uh, and they seem to cycle through them. But I, I think with their system, they kind of decide who their people are pretty early at like cadet level and they stick with them and, and they raise them up through the whole thing. So people probably know relatively early on if they're the person or not um, and if they should stick with it and try to fight for the spot. And I'm sure, you know, training room dynamics play out there too. If you know, you can't beat somebody. Uh, or where you are in the pecking order, but I just feel like there's probably so many, uh, you know, Japanese women's freestyle wrestlers who could be pursuing other athletic outlets, and maybe they're going to, I don't know what the pro wrestling seems like, but maybe they're going to pro wrestling, maybe they're doing other stuff, uh, but yeah, I, I think that would be a huge, 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 uh, you know, base of talent to come over. I'm saying that, like, I, I said last week, you don't see the Russian seventh stringer coming over that often, even though they should, because they can just go transfer to Hungary and be a, you know, a world bronze medalist and then not have to make the right. Russian team. Uh, and, and they have so many more opportunities like that. But I think with women's, 
the market isn't really there for that. People aren't putting up money for you to transfer. So it's just less developed. So you might see that more often. And, and to have weights like 115, 105, 125, 135 being developed would be really great because the lower the weights are in women's, the deeper they are typically. All right, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I think uh, there's one more person you had on, on our sheet here. Uh, Ai Shimizu, is that someone of particular interest to you or are you just looking for names? <laughs> yeah, so she was, a, she was a university bronze medalist and I guess I kind of put her on there because she was on a reality show with Ryzen, which was sort of like an alternate fighter situation. Oh, and cool. I believe she won the show. So now she's kind of getting more and more press there. Um, they have her in a match on this card here against, um, I have my sheet here, yeah, Kana Asakura, who um, is probably going to be favored to win, but I do think that Asakura is much more of a stand-up striker, so if Shimizu is able to wrestle and get her down, I think that, you know, she has a legit path to victory, but um, yeah, I just threw her on there because she did come up in the Japanese women's system and she was a university bronze, but um, yeah, she's kind of been away from the wrestling scene for a while, but yeah, she definitely has... Um, sort of like reality show YouTube star cred now in Japan. Cool. Cool. I'm happy yeah. for it. Uh, yeah. Kana Asakura is like one of their, uh, one of their stars, even though she's not super successful with her fights, but uh, just, she's part of the, uh, the culture with, uh, with Japanese MMA at this point in Japanese uh, combat sports overall, because she had a relationship with Tenshin Nasukawa. I don't know if they're on or off right now with that. That gets people talking. I don't know. It's a, it's a whole thing. Uh, so yeah, she wins. That'd be a lot of attention for her, which is cool. Uh, but yeah, cool. So yeah, Ryzen has a lot of wrestling talent. Uh, Ryzen shows are fun. The main event. No, it's not the main event. It is the main event. It is not, not the main, main event. event. No. Wait, the main event. Am I looking at the wrong card? I think I no. I'm looking at the right card. Where is the? There is the Horiguchi Asakura fight. I was looking at. Uh, yeah. They have another card. It's two cards. No, I think it's just the one. Previous years oh. they've done the two fights. I'm looking yeah, at results. I don't know why I didn't see the results looking at the card the main event of this card there it is is uh kai asakura versus kyoji horiguchi which is a super crazy high level fight um and it's a revenge shot for uh horiguchi and he snapped his uh awesome winning streak so that is something and then i don't specifically know the details of the co-main event but i know tension asakawa is you know one of the pound for pound best kickboxers in the world and he's fighting a, a pretty high level, I think, a stadium champion uh, Thai fighter in kickboxing. So less exciting if it's in kickboxing, but still pretty cool. So that's that's a fun card. Takanori Gomi is not fighting on this card. That's just, you know, it's fake news. No, he is. He retired. You don't think he is? He's not fighting no? in MMA. All right. Well, that it's not be... MMA. It's it's no standing one... room strikes only. No one would ever do it's that. Fun. That would be cruel and unusual. He is... <laughs> Although it's it was like when funny I, when he uh, he knocked out Melvin Gillard. I did not expect that to happen. Uh, yeah, I was trying to find the rules for this fight. Takanori Gomi versus Koji Tanaka, kickboxer. It's going to be, it's punches and spinning back fists only. That's interesting. So, yeah, so it's no kicking and no MMA. It's boxing, but they want them to be able to spinning back fists. And I think it's going to be with MMA gloves. MMA gloves. So... <sighs> I guess that's okay. a fight, depending on yeah. Sure. Whatever you want. Whatever you want, Gomi. Uh, cool. And then, uh, yeah, the other Asakura brother is also fighting, and he's pretty good. So that's a cool card. Watch that. That's the main the main MMA event for the rest of the year. Uh, so at least buy it and watch it later or look for the highlights. I don't know. Figure it out. But that's our little spiel about that card and 
Japanese women in MMA and, and that subject in particular. And we had a very nice tangent about wrestlers translating to MMA. And I, I enjoyed that. Now I'm going to pass, pass the baton, switch topics. Uh, because there isn't really that much to talk about in MMA, what we do sometimes on the show is just start talking about wrestling. Uh, and it's been a very interesting time in wrestling. So basically the last college season got cut short right after conference championships. We're all ready for NCAAs. Everyone had qualified. It was all set up, seated, everything like that. And then COVID canceled it, uh, which was a good idea. That was the event that was going to be like, was that the biggest stadium ever? Like the, the most, the highest capacity crowd ever planned for an NCAA wrestling event? Yeah, I, I think it was the first time they did it in a football stadium. So it goes yeah. from 10 to 15,000 to like 45. Yeah, so that would have been a bad time <laughs> to, to do that. So I guess it's for the best that didn't happen. But yeah, then there was no wrestling for several months. And uh, it's, it was a conversation for a very, very long time in the sport of like, how do we make more money? How do we get more attention? What can we do? How do you grow the sport? How do you grow wrestling? And people say, you need a pro league. You need pro events. Well, they have had, what was the first one? Aegon. Well, they had real pro wrestling which was, uh, I forget who, who made it, but it was going really well. And they had guys like Daniel Cormier and Mo Wall and like Doug Schwab. And people showed up for like one-offs. They had a really nice crew and the events were cool. And they had like a, a moat. There wasn't actually water in it, but they had like a raised uh, ring. And then, you know, outside the ring, there was the, the moat area and you push out into the moat. And I don't know, it was just, it was really cool. And uh, there was a whole article about how that was in contention with the ultimate fighter for which one would get picked up by Spike. And Spike went with the ultimate fighter and then the rest is history. Uh, and then uh, apparently there was a fire in the guy's house that like ran real pro wrestling or had all the records and like a crazy amount of like the documentation and like the tapes and a bunch of stuff burned up. So that, that, that organization is like very dead. So that was the first attempt. It was very good. Um, and then we've had in, in more recent years, this is like 10 years ago, probably, but they had uh, Aegon, they had the Flow Wrestling Pro events. They had um, American Wrestling League was the last one, I think. But there have been a bunch of attempts at a, pro, a recurring pro league with special rules, and it's branded, and it's it's their thing. And uh, I think the most events any of those ever had was like two or three. They never continued. So, Jack, I'll let you take this, but what changed what what allowed wrestling to get into the swing with pro events and, and lead us to where we are today which is a very fun period of, of high level pro events well to be charitable you could say uh there's more fan interest generally uh more fan interest in post-collegiate wrestling uh we're following the guys after they leave for college teams and you're not just rooting for the uniform, you're rooting for the athlete and you're following them. More fan interest in the international styles uh, and more resources for promoters where companies like Flow, like uh, Fight TV, I think had the very first one this summer, uh, are able to pay the wrestlers and put these events together and are able to produce video and get that to fans much more quickly and cheaply the more cynical way to look at it is just it's because there is nothing else where you couldn't have the same uh 
organize, you know, duels and tournaments because of the pandemic. All the international competition was canceled. The college season looked in doubt. It's only finally going to start now, a couple months later than it usually does. And so they realized, well, people just kind of are desperate for wrestling. We can just throw this at them and they'll just watch anything. Mm-hmm. Richard, what's your take on that? I think there's a couple a couple things that I think you kind of are jumping around. One, I think it's the rules. If you remember, Real Pro Wrestling had like this sort of weird way to mix in Greco with <laughs> freestyle. Um, and then I believe the Flow Premier League actually had their own rules, which were just like a random tweet that Adam Tirapelli sent out. Um, so I think one, I think that these are just, for the most part, freestyle matches. There's some Greco matches thrown in. And two, I think that a lot of these matches were really just filling the void because um, there was no other wrestling going on. So it was not somebody trying to start a company or trying to create like a contained thing. It was just saying, hey, here's a chance for our wrestlers to wrestle. Um, we need to get these guys paid. We need to get these guys matches and, and gals. I, I do wonder though, I think that this is probably, um, you know, and Jack kind of said this with people being cynical. I do wonder if a lot of this maybe was propped up by the money that would normally send our domestic athletes on an international tours. And since these international tours weren't happening, that money was sort of rerouted to this. So I do wonder if it's sustainable. Um, most notably, I think the best example of this is the RTC Cup. I think Titan Mercury just dumped money into that because they didn't send people to like Clubs Cup or, you know, any of the other uh international tournaments that happen throughout the year. Um, but I think that that also hits on like an interesting dichotomy or issue too, because on one hand, I think more people probably watch something like Nittany Lion Wrestling Club's like event versus people would watch like the outstanding Ukrainian. But at the same time, if the goal of the USA wrestling is to win medals, you want those guys going to, you know, outstanding Ukrainian, not wrestling former college wrestlers at Nittany Lion. So that's a really good point. That's super tough because yeah, USA wrestling mission statement is to win world and Olympic medals. Um, that is literally their mission statement. So uh, they right. probably are going to prioritize once things uh, are, are capable. Again, they're going to prioritize getting more international competition. Uh, but the athletes, I feel probably overwhelmingly are going to want that money in a pot for them to win and for them to pocket uh, rather than spending it on their travel so they can get more competition. Cause that's, you know, you're paid an experience <laughs> at that point, you know, right. a lot of those, a lot of those lower, not, not lower level actually, but lower level in the scheme of international events, uh, they don't pay much if you win them. They're, they're, it's pretty small pickings. So uh, with like a flow event where, you know, the best guy at the event is Gabe Dean or, or Miles Martin or something like that. You can be second or third on the ladder, 86 kilograms, show up and get 20 K or whatever the, the, the pot was. So <clears throat> these are really, big payouts for for wrestling uh really big payouts so that that's something to be considered and it definitely lines up it's it's come at a good time not actually but it's coming at a good time with uh, the development of the rtc model um that's definitely been picking up where there's just more rtc it's just more interest in the rtc's there's more branding there's more money going into them uh with the rtc cup you know you had a bunch of mostly besides the two that had to conjoin to become one uh but some lively looking teams like you know a lot of the time you didn't have enough guys on in in a club roster to, to fill a team and and they still didn't <laughs> they still had a lot of uh rogues and wild cars and free agents filling up spots but they could have 
Um, they have the guys. So it's just, uh, I think we're in a good time for that. I mean, I'm sure if you ask people 20, 30 years ago, you know, what are, what are the wrestling clubs? What are the training centers? Uh, they would have known like maybe Foxcatcher Farms and they would have known, uh, you know, Hawkeye and maybe like Cyclone. But I feel like there's so many more now and they're really putting themselves out there and it's, it's a new age for stuff like that. So I think uh, the pro model has lined up with that expansion because now some of the more you know, well-to-do wrestling clubs, the bigger ones are putting on their own events. They're, they're hosting them on Rockfin um, and uh, Fight TV as well, I believe. But like a uh, Tar Heel Wrestling Club is doing events. Uh, Nittany Lion Wrestling Club is doing really big events. And I mean, they have, they have the most money out of any club in the country. So they should be doing events. Uh, who else we got? Uh, Wolfpack, they're doing events. Basically most of the schools that we saw at the RGC Cup are, are getting involved in the events game. And uh, you still have your, your regular events like Beat the Streets still went down this, the, the annual gala. That's uh, I think that's funded by Titan Mercury, even though it's a, it's a charity event, but they still have to pay out uh, most of the athletes, I believe. Um, yeah, and Flow Wrestling is really picking up their events game because Flow Wrestling is in danger of losing all of their subscribers because they aren't streaming live events. If there's no live event schedule, they have to create the events uh, to continue to, to have something to offer uh, besides, you know, rankings and stuff. And they're being challenged in their sphere with uh, Willie Saylor going to Rockfin and, and competition picking up a little bit in the media sphere. So I think that's pushed them a little bit. So if you're uh, <laughs> if, you, if you subscribe to this model, you could say that's uh, the free market, uh, you know, raise, raising everyone, up, but it also might just be completely majority circumstantial and something that won't persist uh, after things go back to normal. So I guess that's my next question to you guys is uh, how do you see, just let's start near future, once the college season gets in full swing at the end of this week, uh, well not full swing, but once it starts at the end of this week, do you think we're going to see a significant slowdown in these events? Yes, I mean, it depends how significant you're talking, but there will be a slowdown. Um, especially, I think, the Rockfin stuff, uh, where the RTCs are just going to be putting these events on on their own, and maybe so, uh, some teams just don't have enough wrestlers where they're filling out these cars with college guys, and they, they're not going to be doing that during the college season. Mm-hmm. But that is a big part of this story is – the, the battle between Flow and Rockfin uh, and those two basically just fighting over viewers. And that seems like it's not slowing down. Yeah, I know that Flow, I believe, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I saw a news report that Flow lost the deal with Big Ten. And mm-hmm. I imagine that they were shelling out a lot of cash from that. And maybe that's redistributing cash into these one off events. Um, I do wonder about the a lot of these RTC events with the college season going on. Um, the last Ninny Lion event had a bunch of guys who are college wrestlers at Penn State and a bunch of guys who are college wrestlers at North Carolina State. Um, so obviously in the middle of the folk style season, they would be focused on that. I do think that there's really no reason to slow down per se. I mean, I think you may have to work around the college schedule, but for a lot of these international guys or, you know, freestyle Greco guys, I don't see why they couldn't do events like this if the people are still willing to pay for them. Uh, The ones that are on fight, you know, those are ones where people are paying 
out of pocket, but for the yeah. Rockfin and you know Flow ones, I mean, I think that's just more about making a value proposition to your subscribers. And I think if you can make the money work, you can do it. I, I also wonder about the NCAA getting involved because these are college athletes potentially competing in a pro event. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, I do believe, and I have no reason to doubt that these colleges are following all the appropriate, um, you know, rules. I don't think any money's being exchanged because they're amateur athletes, but you know, when I was in high school, university of Maryland used to play basketball against the Harlem Globetrotters and the NCAA just said, no, you're not going to be using our stuff to make money. So I do wonder if the wrestling will be able to skate by being an Olympic sport, not a money-making sport for that, or if that's something that may change um, when the coaches sit down at the end of the year and yell at each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Um, Just for me personally, I I hope, I hope it continues as much as it can. Uh, I think if they aren't able to utilize college athletes, the the scheduling will have to slow down. Right. Cause they just won't have the bodies to fill the cards. Mm -hmm. Um, If you ever watched any of these events uh, other than flow events, which have their own type of pacing, but pretty much every other event, super, super quick pacing, like, roll right into the next match no packaging no breaks no nothing just go uh maybe they'll have like one message in between like in the middle or something but they just go for it the flow events sometimes they're super fast sometimes they put like 10 minutes of breaks in between things it's really annoying um but they go through them quick so if you only have a few matches it's really hard to make a full event out of that plus you have no idea how they're going to match up so maybe the match ends in 30 seconds um, in all of your matches and in 30 seconds, <laughs> that's possible. Uh, right. And, you know, you could say that about a fight card too, but let's think of who does, who does small, small cards boxing, right? That's very high percentage chance that you're going to get a good few minutes out of those. Uh, whereas wrestling matches, you really, it's really hard to tell, uh, how you're gonna be able to structure the fan experience. That's why they're loading these cards up. Plus they just want to get work for their guys and their girls. Right. So just get, you know, as many people on as you can, uh, I'm looking at, uh, just offhand, the last Nittany Lion Pro card. There were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. There are 29 matches. That is counting Santa versus the Grinch, which I think is a real match, in my opinion. Um, but that's almost 30 matches. And how long did that take? A couple hours? Yeah, I mean, they run through these cards. Yes, it's really quick. I, I think you, you brought up the point about like, there's the other model and the flow model. I think we need to find a happy medium because some mm-hmm. of these cards, I'm trying to take notes so I can talk about this, this, the matches and I like can't even finish my notes before the next match starts. And then there's flow where they'll just take like, you said 10 minutes. On some of those cards, they're taking like 30 minute breaks between yeah. matches like for no reason. It's also tough because Rockfin doesn't have a pause and a forward skip button. Oof. Yeah, that is kind of annoying as well. Actually. So it's just, it's over when it's over. And then the archives don't go up right away afterwards. Right, so yeah. a, it, it just disappears. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so a happy medium would be nice. Uh, just figure out how to package these. But yeah, it's, it's the very beginning of any sort of consistent pro structure. This is by far the most pro events. And they probably quadrupled the number of pro events in the history mm-hmm. of amateur wrestling within a one-year span. Um, you know, versus the entirety of forever. 
So it's a, it's, it's a huge, huge leap. So we're at the very beginning of this. Um, I think uh, the sport has been propelled uh, for sure into a good direction. I don't think that, uh, you know, cards on Rockford and flow have, you know, appeal outside of wrestling. And that has been what wrestling, the wrestling community has talked about so many times. We've had this conversation together, I think before about growing wrestling, like who do you appeal to? Um, And I think we all agree. It's, even though they, you often hear the focus is being like to create new fans and grow the sport, you got to appeal to the, to the base you have because the base you have is big enough and you're not hitting it and then you're not getting them engaged. So although Rockfin and Flow Wrestling probably aren't reaching new audiences, they are providing the existing base a way to plug in in a way they didn't before. And so many people have been you know, antagonized or alienated by or just for some other reason don't like Flow Wrestling perhaps the pricing, uh, lots of reasons. They have other outlets now. They have other places they can go to get their money. And with the deal falling out of Big Ten, now someone could just say, oh, I only care about Penn State wrestling so I can get my Big Ten network subscription. Oh, cool, I watch football too. Got it. I have my Rockfin subscription so I don't miss the Nittany Lion cards. I have everything I want. I'm paying a lot of, I'm putting a lot of money into wrestling and I don't have to patronize people I don't like. So I'm sure that fan exists. Maybe I made them up. Uh, but, you know, that that's a possibility as well. Um, although, you know, the University of Pittsburgh's wrestling club held a pro event, and I did not pay for that, but I did buy gear. But it'll happen. It'll happen soon. Um, so I, I think it's going to incentivize fans to get a little more involved in, in, in being fans uh, because college is by far what attracts the most wrestling fans. Uh, the NCAA championships are the most popular event of the year. I think that's pretty fair to say. Uh, the Olympics, I don't know what the differences are in like viewership of like an Olympic finals match on NBC versus the NCAA finals on ESPN. But I'm sure it's comparable um, at the very least. And that's an international audience versus just Americans pretty much. Uh, but yeah, I think this is a way to start to get attention on freestyle and Greco domestically which is a good place to start because getting people to care about foreign athletes is probably harder uh, than getting them to care about the guys they already knew from college so uh, i think we're going in a good direction do you guys have any uh, additional takes or ideas or anything you wanted to add to this whole development suggestions for what they could do so i guess i'm, I'm just curious to see how this how the athletes uh, focus on these, if they still want to do it once normal competition resumes. You know, if, if you have, you know, the, uh, you know, Medved in the summer and you've got, you know, Dave Schultz in the winter and you've got your college guys to work with, you know, do the athletes still want to sign on to these things or not? And that could be what kind of makes or breaks it. I'm very fascinated with, you mentioned the idea of expanding the sport and getting more people to watch. We did have, you know, Darian Caldwell and Boba Jenkins and Aljamain Sterling um, come in. And I think with the exception of Sterling, the other two, you know, didn't do particularly well. And I I really want to try to get to a place where we can have, where we can have people come back from MMA or non-wrestlers compete from the stance that they may bring an audience without sacrificing the you know, sort of quality, 
quality and also just the fact that it's, it is wrestling. It's not special rules. You know, we had that the Downey situation where he was wrestling guys with his own rule set and the matches were never very good. Um, I just think that we need to figure out a way to do that. I don't know what that is. I think that the, the fact that uh, Aljamain Sterling and Roman Bravo Young did the freestyle match and then the three-minute BJJ match, maybe that's the way. You kind of do a two-match series or something like that. But I do think that that's something that has the potential to bring more eyeballs in, but has to be done in a way that it doesn't, you know, mess up the wrestling-ness of the product. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have an answer, but I, I do want to see how that turns out going forward. Yeah, I think uh, maybe higher profile fighters mm-hmm. is probably the way. Because right now they're getting guys who are marginally popular in MMA that are wrestlers. But if you got, say, Daniel Cormier to do a pro match, which is funny because he had an exhibition match at like a Grappler's Quest or, or like a UFC grappling tournament. Like, you know how they have their own branded tournaments at their events mm-hmm. sometimes? He, he wrestled Chris Pendleton. Uh, he beat Chris Pendleton at a match. Like within the past five or six years, that happened. it was his retirement match. Um, it got like no attention. But if you put that on something else today, that exact matchup, I think that would be something that could draw other people in because they say, oh, I don't really care about wrestling. But a lot of people care about Daniel Cormier. A lot of uh, MMA fans do. And ones that weren't, that weren't wrestling fans to begin with. So I, I think that's where the potential is. But how how do you afford that right. <laughs> uh, that true. sounds expensive so if i think you, they if, had yeah on the first submission underground and they have like they had john jones against dan henderson, dan henderson yeah in a grappling match yeah mm. that's you know that, if he can afford if he can afford that for a wrestling match then i i would love to mm. see daniel cormier versus john jones uh in a cage it'd be kind of dumb but you know Kyle Snyder, John Jones, baby. Let's see it. Kyle Snyder, John Jones. Jeez, that would be one of the worst buildups. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, because I, mean, I think that I think the most successful one was probably Askren Burroughs. Yeah, I think that got a lot of play outside of the wrestling community. I don't know how many people signed up to Flow to watch it, but I know that that was definitely you know just from the people that I know in MMA who don't follow wrestling at all, they they knew about it, they wanted yeah. to watch it, you know. So I think that that was the most successful. Maybe that's because Askren's a very online personality. Sure. But um, and he may he probably did flow a solid. It didn't ask for like a huge payday. I assume mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but um, but yeah, he still got like blown out completely. So did not score. Did not no. score a point. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably the way they would have to do it if they want to see any big jumps. Uh, just the the logistical questions definitely come into into call there but yeah we'll see we'll see what happens we'll definitely keep talking about this kind of stuff because there isn't too much else to talk about but once the college season gets going maybe i'll uh, i'll have these guys back to talk college uh once we have some results in because even though this is the wrestling for mma podcast the wrestling podcast isn't really going <laughs> on the fight site we don't really have any sort of consistent dedicated wrestling podcast is easy to put out. So I might just keep jamming it into this one um, while I have you here well, I, captive. Um, I'll, I'll be back a little bit. I should um, be able to do something a bit more consistently. If anyone listening to this is interested in a somewhat regular wrestling podcast. Yeah. Sounds good. We need it. Um, and you're all going to be Michigan wrestling fans. It's just the way it is. 
I didn't think I was going to care about Michigan wrestling, but I listened to Blood Round a lot. And Blood Round does a lot of uh, simping for Michigan wrestling, and they, they got me. They got me on the hook. They spend too much time on Central Michigan, though. I care about the University of Michigan. Those are the guys I want to hear about. They're trying to make me Central Michigan fans. I'm like, you're wasting your Dr- time. Dresden Simon and Drew Hildebrand are both <laughs> legit, man. You got to get on the Central Michigan bandwagon. I watched their duel with the uh, Ruck. I, I was at their duel with Ryder uh, last season. And, uh, they're, they're an interesting team, but it just if you're comparing the two, it's like it's not even worth my time to think about yeah. the other team. Cool. So uh, that, that's me signing off. Do you guys have any closing remarks? plugs yeah i'll plug all day uh richard a man on twitter um intermatwrestle.com always got stuff coming out i never know what it is until i start writing it uh and uh clay sour tig our our compatriot our homie we do a rap show on youtube it's called matt side check it out um i make fun of him for liking penn state and he makes fun of me for only liking teams that lose so (laughs) it's a great time you'll love it yeah, I, uh, I, uh, speaking of Michigan, I'm going to be starting a Michigan wrestling podcast, uh, and that'll be first episode probably coming out in a week or so. Um, I'm working on recording them now. The Michigan season, I think, is going to start on the 15th or something like that of January, uh, and I'll hopefully be back to writing for the fight site a little more consistently. It was a busy season. It was a busy season for many. We're going to be happy to, to have Jack back in, in action. All right, cool. That's the podcast. You know, obviously check out the fight site. Check out us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com backslash fight site. And we have so much content behind the paywall. Three bucks gets you everything, pretty much everything behind the paywall um, these days. I used to play with that before, but now it's just whatever it is it's on there for three um you get other stuff for more money check that out but the main thing is all the special content we do and the main appeal of that would be commentary and any content that we do that involves putting footage of a fight or competition on the screen while we talk about it because youtube doesn't like that obviously for copyright concerns so if you want to watch our very copyright unfriendly content that is on patreon okie dokie See you guys next week to talk about something else, I guess.